0: We're continuing our suggested topics sermon series where you have submitted various topics to me and we're at number 27 today and so we've still got a few more to go yet so there's you you gave me lots of topics and this is the uh, seventh in the category of Christian living that is uh, has 13 in it today's topic addresses a problem that is often found in Reformed churches. The topic is this, the Reformed challenge of biblical knowledge stored versus knowledge applied. So this speaks of the problem of people who know the truth and yet do not practice the truth. It's a well-known issue in Reformed churches particularly. And we're going to look at why that is the case later on. But you know the types of what we're talking about. The, they can tell you all about you know what the Bible teaches, about this and that and the other thing. They understand what it says about, about man's sinful condition, about the way of salvation, important things. They understand God's commandments and they can even explain how individuals ought to keep the commandments and go into details about how they're to be observed And uh, they can talk about how our society has violated and transgressed God's law. And all of that is good and fine and things that we ought to be able to do. But these same people don't seem to love the Lord they speak about. And they don't live godly lives of service or seem to care about other people. They might observe the commandments in kind of a rigid way. But they're jaded and they're, uh, they're harsh a lot of times. They, instead of delighting in God's law, they seem almost to view it as some unpleasant thing that God has given us that we have to conform to. You know, oh, I've got to do, you know, it's, it's more like that than something that is delighting in God's law with a, a renewed heart. Although it was long before the Reformation, this was actually a common problem among the Jews when Jesus came in the first century. And it was also a problem that emerged in the early church, interestingly enough, even while the scriptures were still being written. And so what that means is that we have a whole lot of things in the, in the Bible that address this problem in the, in the New Testament. Uh, I, I thought about turning to, there were a lot of passages I thought about going to. there was is uh, 1 Corinthians 8 where it says, knowledge puffs up. But love edifies. And there is 1 John 1 where it explains that those who walk in the light, rather than becoming proud because I'm in the light and you're not, become more humble because when the light is shining on us, we see our sins and we confess our sins. And if we say we have no sin, then we're not really walking in the light, whatever we say. Or James 1, 21 through 27, James 2, where it talks about being a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. I, I might have gone also to Second Peter chapter 1, first 11 verses where it talks about being unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. Those you, know, you know about Christ, but there's no fruit there. There's no, there's no new life. There are other places I might have gone as well. But I ended up, it's always a bit of a challenge, you know, choosing what passage is best with these topics that are just brought out week by week. But uh, for this topic, I ended up choosing Romans 2. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans uh, in the first epistle. He talks about how the Gentiles go wrong by suppressing the truth. And they come up with idols like version, their own version of God. You know, it's like a designer, designer version of God. What do do I want God to be? And they begin to fill in the blanks. They pass it on to each other by traditions and things like that. The truth that is clearly revealed through creation and conscience is turned into a lie. Like they pervert those things and twist them around and they, they don't, you know, worship God. And so the Jews hear that and they say, yeah, those old Gentiles, that's the way they are. And then in chapter 2, Paul turns to them. He says, who are you, old man? We're going we're to read that in a few minutes. But uh, he addresses the Jews, you know, here's the serious ones. You know, we know the word of God. We have the law of God. And uh, he addresses them with this issue of knowing the truth and not doing it. All the while supposing that they're in good shape because we know we know what's right. We're not like those old Gentiles over there. And he, he more or less says, you know, you're worse because if you know what to do and you're not doing it, that's worse than somebody that. It doesn't even know They're Both bad, but you guys can't pride yourself just because you you know stuff if because you don't do it. So uh, I will read this chapter to you. This is this is Romans chapter two. And if you have the handout outline, I I printed part of it, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. So um, you don't don't get confused as I uh, as, as I'll be reading all the verses in verses one through twenty nine. So so here is the word of God. This is, again, he's, he's addressing, he just said how the Gentiles have their problems. And now he's saying, but you Jews, and we could say you Christians, right, today, people that know God's way, that know the way of God, and yet don't practice it. So he says, therefore, you are inexcusable, oh man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, the forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each man, each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory or for glory, honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, and their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God, And know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of his law, verse 19 now, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written, for the circumcision for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his circumcision his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. There we end the reading of God's word. So you see what Paul is showing them is the Gentiles need Christ and the Jews need Christ. We all need Christ. That's basically what he's showing us here. And he brings that out in chapter three. We're all sin come short of the glory of God. We all need Christ. So consider, first of all, that there are two kinds of knowledge that are referred to here. There's a good kind and a bad kind. (laughs) That's pretty simple, isn't it? Let's look at them. Okay, first, the good kind of knowledge. The good kind of knowledge is the true knowledge of God. All through the Bible, one of the ways that you refer to people that are God's people is that they know the Lord. You know, we, we speak that way too. We, maybe we hear of a sick relative or something. Someone says, will you pray for my, uh, my relative that's in the hospital? And we say, do they know the Lord? We want to know, do they know the Lord? That's how we talk about it. And uh, so, knowledge is, is really very, very important as far as our Christian walk. In his great high priestly prayer in John 17 3, Jesus describes eternal life as knowing God. He says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He goes on to pray that his disciples would grow in their knowledge of him and that they would make him known. And that when they get to heaven, that they would know him even more. That they would see the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. Knowing the Lord means that you know what he is like. It means that you see his glory. You see that he is sovereign. You see his holiness and his wisdom. It means that you know what he has done. As the creator of the world, you acknowledge him redeeming his people by sending Jesus you you know about that and how he died on the cross for our sins it also means that you know his judgment as well as his grace and mercy the great love that he has knowing the Lord also means that you understand his ways you know the way of salvation and you have trusted in that way to save you you also know the commandments of the Lord how he wants you to live and you understand his way You see that it is a good way and a lovely way, and you want to live in it. The right kind of knowledge makes you hungry for more knowledge. You want to know Christ better. You want to know the Father better. You want to know his ways better. So much so that you actually ask him, search me and show show me if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Your love compels you to search the scriptures that you might learn of God and that you might learn what is pleasing to him and that you might indeed guide others in the way of truth, that you might not lead others astray. Now let's look at the wrong kind of knowledge. The wrong kind of knowledge is very insidious and foolish. It's a foolish kind of knowledge because it's knowledge that is held as if it was only theoretical It's held as if it was just an idea, a fictional story that the one holding the knowledge is very excited about and intrigued by. But it is something that he actually never really, he never acts on. He never actually receives the knowledge. In other words, it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really benefit him. Now, I don't mean, though, that the person doesn't do anything. With, with the knowledge. In fact, he does a lot. What do we see in Romans 2 that we read a minute ago? This is talking about the wrong kind of knowledge. He boasts. And then let's come back from that a little bit. We, we sang in Psalm 34 about boasting the Lord. That was a good thing. But he, he boasts. It talks about him boasting because he, he knows the law. And really it's right to boast about Christ and about God's way and even the law. So, so it can be hard to tell the difference when it's right or wrong. We should also not be overly suspicious when we hear someone telling about how wonderful God's law is. That's a good thing. That's, the, you know, we have that in the Psalms. Indeed, we should all be more excited about the gospel and the word of God than we are. And it is right for us to express our delight the way Paul so often does when he's talking about what God's done. And then he breaks out in a doxology, starts praising God. But if an individual is excited about doctrine and boasting about it, but he is grossly lacking in godliness and is filled with pride, it may be that he is boasting in what he knows rather than actually delighting in that truth that he's even talking about. It's a weird twist, isn't it? But you know about it. He may even believe it to be true. But his sinful human heart never lets the light really expose his sin so that he never really changes at the core. He never actually humbles himself to receive and rest on Christ for salvation because he he dabbles in the light, but he always keeps it off a little bit so that it doesn't humble him before the Lord. He feels then morally and intellectually superior, as it says in Romans 2, to others, even though his obedience is only at the surface. He's not committing adultery or stealing or breaking the Sabbath, he says, and he believes in an election and he professes that men cannot be saved, cannot save themselves, unlike so many other Christians, you know, that distort those things. he He sees our society on the road to destruction and he can tell you about all the things that that are wrong in the way things are done, and about sexual perversion and political corruption and so on. He feels that he's far ahead of most Christians and not like the men of the world. And so there is no heart cry from this one for mercy and transformation of his own life because he feels superior. Morally and intellectually, and it is not that he is without service either. He may even become a minister, as Romans 2 says, a teacher of others, a teacher of babes, people that don't know. He loves doctrine and he's able to explain it. The Holy Spirit may use him also. The Holy Spirit may use him to teach others and lead them to the truth. He may, in fact, be an instructor of others and not teach himself, like it says. A person like this may also do good works. That may be his thing instead of uh, teaching. He may may go around doing stuff. But here again, good works are done by his sinful heart to keep him from really ever letting the light in, from ever really humbling himself to receive the Lord Jesus. He always is held off from Christ, always held off from his need. Of a savior. So you see what the problem is. He knows stuff and he does stuff, but the whole while his heart remains unyielded to the living God. He refuses to actually submit to the salvation of God. He sneers at those whose theology is inferior to his own or whose moral practices are inferior to his own at the surface level. What does this have to do, especially with Reformed theology? I mean, why did I say before that this is so much a problem, especially in Reformed churches? Well, it's a problem in Reformed churches because the re- people that are interested in Reformation, the Reformation was about returning to the way of the Lord and what we believe and how we live and faith and practice. The Reformers returned to the Bible is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. They return to the Bible to see how things ought to be done and what ought to be believed. And uh, those who return to the word find that the Bible presents a very coherent and amazing, beautiful system of truth. It's remarkable to see the unity of the different parts of the Bible over the years, uh, The Bible's teaching, the way that it was unfolded, the incredible way of salvation that is revealed there, how that God sent His own Son to become a man and offer Himself to take away His people's sins. It's lovely to see the high moral standards that are presented in the Bible, to see that we are to love each other and how that love is to be exercised, and how we're to love God and worship Him, how we're to lay down our lives for one another things that our consciences know are true, and you can say, hey, this is beautiful. Look at this. This is, this is a good thing. But here is the danger. Okay? Somebody that is a knowledge lover can be attracted to all these wonderful characteristics about the Bible. And they often find their way into what kind of churches? Confessionally reformed churches that take the Bible Seriously, because their whole reason that they came about was seeking to reform according to Scripture. So they're drawn to them because these churches believe the truth and they make profession of faith in them. These people that are lovers and, and sometimes become pastors and teachers in them as well. Sometimes they may be quite strong on doctrine and teaching, but because there's no true humility in them before the Lord, their walk is kind of twisted and kind of truncated. They, they may be harsh or unwilling to serve or to sacrifice in various ways. They may be full of envy and criticism that masquerades as a love for truth and purity. They may have an edge on them or show discontentment and frustration. They may have outbursts of anger, things of that nature. They may engage in secret sins, pornography or adultery or Or lies with no true repentance. Here is the problem. They have various problems like we all do. But all the while they console themselves that they're trafficking in the truth. That they know the truth. Isn't that what it's describing in Romans 2? They are better than others because I know the truth. I hold to the truth. They don't humble themselves and cry out to God for mercy as the truth they know teaches them to do, but they console themselves simply to know stuff. That's exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 2. He is showing that the truth knowers need Jesus just as much as those who are ignorant do. No one should think that they're okay because of what they know. This is a temptation that all of us can fall into in our Reformed churches, or I suppose any church. But if you are a true believer, you have indeed turned to Christ, and you are truly trusting in Him for salvation. But even as a believer, this can be a problem. You know that your righteousness is only from Him, and you're trusting Him for that righteousness. That's at the core of you, and for the forgiveness that is only through Christ crucified. We're rightly in a church that is Reformed, and That is a church that's following the word of God rather than believing the philosophies of men and following the traditions of men and things like that. But the danger is that we, too, can use that as a cloak at times to keep us away from Christ. Now, that's a pretty terrible thing. Just like the unbeliever in the Reformed Church, we can, as a believer, console ourselves that we're right with God Because we hold the truth. Unlike those soft evangelicals, those traditionalists, those Arminians, those liberals, whatever it might be. Instead of humbling ourselves and crying out to God on account of our remaining sin, we can avoid him. Hiding a cloak under a cloak. Not that as a true believer you can do that completely. (laughs) But you may excuse yourself for not being diligent in service. After all, at least you know the truth. You hold the truth to the Reformed faith. Or you may excuse your anger, your discontentment, because you go to a solid Reformed church and you know the truth. Or you may ignore your unkindness to your neighbors and coworkers because, well, they're, they're unbelievers and they annoy me because they don't, they don't love God. My brothers and sisters, as a Reformed church, we are not to be like that. And sometimes we are like that. If we know and believe the truth, we should be all the more zealous about serving all the more conformed to God's commandments right down to the heart and all the more gracious and kind to our neighbors. I remember I had a we we had a guest minister come one time to one of our uh, courses in reformed pastoring uh, when I was in seminary and he brought that out. He said, you know, it's not like different churches have this and that and the other thing they do. But he said, if we're following Jesus Christ and we have uh, reformed theology and practice, then we need to have the zeal of the most zealous church. We need to have the service of the most serving church. We need to have we need to have all of that. It's not like, oh, well, we've got this. And so we don't need that. We've got to have we, we, we need to follow God in all that we do. So so be but beware with this thing, with knowledge that you don't over react. What do I mean by that? Satan has a snare in this very matter that we need to be aware of, and it often catches the the careless. The snare is this. Since reformed people and people who are zealous for the truth are sometimes less faithful and less consistent in their walk than others in important areas of, say, love and kindness, Satan would like for you to think and for others to think that the problem is that Re- reformed people are too zealous for the truth. Right. People will think that we would like for Christians to take pride. Satan would like, so not we, Satan, he would like for Christians to take pride in being ignorant that, oh, I don't care about the truth. I, I don't know very much about the truth and I don't I'm not, I don't really want to know very much about the truth. I just want to serve Jesus. I just want to love him. You know, that that kind of an attitude. But think about how wrong that is. Think about it. Our relationship with Christ is like a relationship of a wife to a husband, right? What would you think of a wife who said, I don't really want to know much about my husband. I just want to love him and serve him. (laughs) I don't want to know him. Uh, I don't want to get to know him any better than I know him already. Even though I might be greatly mistaken about who he really is. And probably wouldn't add that, but... Nor do I want to bother with learning what pleases him. Because I just want to serve him. I just want to love him. I don't care whether it pleases things I'm doing, please him or not. The problem is not with knowing and holding the truth about what God says. The problem is with knowing and holding it without receiving the knowledge that you gain with transforming Grace. To receive it without the Holy Spirit would be another way to say it. Working in your heart. When you receive truth, you need to receive the Holy Spirit with that truth so that it transforms you. The reality is you don't know the truth. You don't really know the truth unless it transforms you. You may be able to articulate it better than anyone else but you you know it in an academic way, but you don't know it in the way you ought to know it. Sometimes when there's a big persecution that comes through the church, then the big academic professors that can teach everybody about all the theology and even the ones that are orthodox will be the first to run away. And there's a simple Christian over here who has received the truth with the Holy Spirit who stands firmly and continues faithfully with Jesus Christ. You see, the real problem is that not that you know too much, but you don't know it with the working of the Spirit in you. What can we do about this problem? Well, let a true heart cry begin in you. That's what needs to happen. That's what's missing. Paul's cry in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul knew what sin was. He had knowledge, and he then cried out to God because he was convicted. The tax collector's cry, who went down to his house justified rather than the other man, in Luke 18:13, "God be merciful to me, literally, the sinner. I am the sinner of sinners," Or Psalm 25:11. "Pardon my iniquity." it is great. Now we can get into just saying those things too as part of the show. But to really bring such prayers before God from a true heart of repentance. Don't embrace the truth without letting it get in you so that it renews your mind. Don't take in the light without letting it shine on your heart. So that it exposes you. And that's what we naturally as sinners resist. We want it to stay here where we can kind of talk about it and describe it. But we don't want it to shine right into us. But that's what light does. It's what it's supposed to do. In Ephesians 5.13, Paul tells us that all things are exposed and made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. That's why 1 John talks about sin the way it does it. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We see our sin. And it talks about we confess our sin. If you are walk in the darkness, then you think you're OK. Our Lord Jesus shows us that avoiding the light is the problem. In John 3, 19 through 21, it says, and this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world. Jesus came into the world, the light of God. And men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And who are the ones that especially love darkness rather than the light that hated Jesus? The ones that were most out there saying, look at me, I'm righteous. I know the truth. You don't know the truth. I'm following God. You're not following God. He says, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. The person who is outwardly the, you know, the uh, tax collectors and the harlots and the different ones. Everybody knows that they're not in the light and they know it, too. But what about the ones that say, oh, yes, those are all bad things and I don't do those things. But they don't let the real light cut open and expose them so that they come to Christ. Jesus says he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. He wants to know that he's walking in God's way. The problem with Reformed people who know a lot and are not transformed is not that they know too much truth, but that they are not letting the truth in. They can understand it, they can talk about it, but they avoid it by keeping it from truly exposing them. They keep it at arm's length, you might say, From their soul, so that it never convicts and truly humbles them. Let's look at some specific ways our knowledge of God ought to change us and will change us if it gets in to us. When you know God's glory, you bow before Him with reverence and amazement. You must not be satisfied merely to be impressed with God's glory, like you're studying about a specimen or something. It is the living God with whom you have to do. And you fall down before him when you see his glory, the way Moses did. It ought to compel you to, be, to humble yourself and to bring praise and adoration and service to him. When you know his mercy, it melts you with devoted gratitude. Paul could not get over the fact that God had saved him. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. He, considers himself, he considered himself all his life to be a debtor to God's mercy. And he lived consistently with that reality, pouring out his life in sacrificial service and never complaining about the things that he bore for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was tender with the weak and lowly, and severe with those who were not tender with the meek and lowly the weak and lowly. When you know God's sovereignty, you will respond to him in all circumstances. When you know God is sovereign, it means that everything he, it comes in your life, he has sent to you and you will respond to him accordingly. Otherwise, you don't really know God's sovereignty in the way you ought. If blessing comes, you receive it as from his hand and you give true thanks for it. And you live as though you're grateful with a willingness to share what he has blessed you with. If affliction comes, You recognize that this also is from him. As Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And you respond with repentance if needed and with humble trust, knowing that he has sent it, whatever it is, for wise purposes in your life, for his glory and for your good. It also affects the way you treat those who are agents of affliction, in other words, God is sovereign and whatever comes into our life comes from his hand ultimately. But he uses Assyrians to punish his people or he uses um, angry people or different ones to 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 deal with us. How do you respond to them? Instead of being afraid of them, you fear God and trust him. And you're bold, bold as a lion toward those who mistreat you. And instead of being harsh and angry with those who have afflicted you, you're able to leave vengeance with God. He will repay when you know his knowledge of all things that God knows everything, then you stop hiding. And children, your catechism says, can you see God? And the answer is, no, I cannot see God, but he can always see me. When you know that God sees everything you do, you realize that he can see your thoughts. He can see what you're thinking when nobody else can see that. If you have a right kind of knowledge about him then you're going to stop pretending to be what you are not before God. You're going to put on an act. God sees right through it. Why would you put on an act if you believe that God knows? If you don't really believe that, if it's just something that's theory, God knows everything. He sees me. He sees everything about me. It's not going to affect how you live. I remember uh, when I was a fairly new Christian, I was on a summer mission team in Montreal. And uh, I was studying the Ten Commandments the first time I'd ever really studied them carefully. And the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. When I found out that meant before my face, I always thought it meant more important than me. And when I realized it meant no other gods before my face. And it was just overwhelming because I realized that God saw all the idols that I have and all the things that, you know, I'm lusting after or, or whatever it might be as I'm going about town. And it was, it was just really overwhelming. Um, And and that's that's what we're talking about here. You confess your sin rather than hiding and pretending like God can't see it. When you know his forgiveness, you'll be full of thanksgiving and you'll go to him whenever you have sinned. You will also forgive others and not be harsh toward them if you've been forgiven. If you're thankful for his forgiveness or if you're not thankful for his forgiveness, you don't know his forgiveness, not as you ought to know it. When you are unwilling to forgive others, you clearly have forgotten. About his forgiveness of you or you never knew it at all, perhaps. When you know his power, it puts you to your prayers. You cry out to him to work in the world and in the church because you know that he can do that. You pray large prayers, not restricted and small prayers because you have received the knowledge of God's power. When you know his holiness, It purifies you. You live a holy life. Did he not say be holy for I am for I am holy. He is beautifully set apart from sin and defilement. If you really know that, if the light shines in your heart, then you will turn from your sin. John tells us that when we see him, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. Likewise, when you really see his holiness, it will make you disgusted. Disgusted with your sin so that you turn from it instead of kind of having a friendly relationship with it, you know, where it's kind of your friend. And as much as sin is appealing and attractive to you, you don't see the holiness of God. And we don't see the holiness of God as we should. You see, these are realities that we live with. If the light is shining, we're going to see that stuff. If the light's not shining, then we're just superficially going along on the surface. When you know his patience, it makes you gentle. He has been patient with you, so you will be patient with others. Those who boast of their knowledge about God's patience can show their understanding best by imitating his patience. Go around talking about how patient God is with you. Well, show what you think about his patience by how you deal with others. Better imitation than declaration. What is the main point here? We could, I could go on and on with this stuff. What is the main point? The real knowledge, that real knowledge in your soul changes you. Knowledge, superficial knowledge does not. And I want to stress this. How does it change you? How does real knowledge change you? I've really explained this. This is kind of a summary here. But it changes you by entering into your soul. The light gets in you and you see truly what God is what you are, how much need, how much you need his salvation and how gracious he is. And then instead of dodging the light, you cry out to God for mercy. You look at your slender love for God, your selfishness, your pride, your lust and all the rest in the light of God's beautiful glory. You see that Jesus came to deliver you from all that and to bring you to glory and to make you whole and that he died for your complete pardon from all of that and that he calls you to come to him for deliverance and you do that. You go to him for deliverance and when you do, he delivers you. And you become more and more conformed to his image so that you aren't sort of a twisted up Christian that has all this stuff that you say you know that's not consistent with who you are. What needs to happen is that you need to habitually go to your Savior. Inasmuch as the Reformed Church is full of knowledge without transformation and vibrant life and warm, loving service, it is not. Because of too much knowledge, but because the knowledge has not been received into the soul. If it had been, there would be transformation. What is needed as a corrective is not ignorance. What is needed is knowledge that is not just asserted or assented to, but knowledge that is taken into your soul before the face of God. Please stand and let's ask God to help us. Oh Lord, our God, we we're too acquainted with this problem that we've looked at today. We're we're too familiar with it. It's too much a part of us. Oh, Lord, that we have knowledge that that puffs us up. Because the knowledge is not really taken in, whatever we may say. We know, Lord, that when knowledge of truth is is taken in, that it transforms a person through and through. So we pray, Lord, that you might help us because the Bible is full of admonitions to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and such things to know the truth that sets us free to know even as we are known. You know, there's so many so many things that are there calling us to come to the light and to receive the truth, to grow in the truth, to grow in your word, to love your word. And, you know, these things, it's not the problem that we would do that, that we would yearn for your word. The problem is, is when we yearn for it in the wrong way and when we're not really looking to walk with our God, we're not really looking to know you in a way that, truly does transform us father and we're very good we're very good at deceiving ourselves and very good at deceiving other people we pray that you would have mercy on us lord sometimes the best prayer we can pray is is help me please help me lord please have mercy on me and have very little else to say because lord we really are a case And we really do need a lot of help. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in us because we there's a part of us, Lord, by your grace, that we do want to be holy. We want to be what you've called us to be. We're a mess. And we want to be changed. And we pray, Lord, that we would that we would come to you and we would come to the light and we would receive the light and we would let light in. And that the light of your the knowledge of the truth would shine in our hearts. And that Satan would not work in us so that we want to block that, so that we're we're kind of covered over with a shell. Father, we pray that you would you would work in our lives and make us sincere and honest followers of Christ. Father, help us to encourage one another. And help us too. We we have a a tendency to judge others, too. And we we look at other people and want to say, oh, look, they're they're probably not sincere or, you know, that that kind of a way. We pray, Lord, that you would help us. Yeah, we want to we want to see if there's a problem in someone's life. And we want to we want to point that out to them It's part of our our duty and our calling. But we don't want to be doing that because we're envious and because we're wanting to see ourselves as superior or Having, And we can't do that if the light is shining in our heart. But if it's not shining in our heart, then we'll have all those raunchy attitudes that we saw in Romans 2. We think about what Paul is really getting at in Romans 1 and 2 and chapter 3. He says, we judge, therefore, that all are under sin. <laughs> whether they have the law or whether they don't have the law, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous, no, not one. And so justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. Deliverance is by Christ. It's not by us pulling up our bootstraps and and doing really, really well. It's us coming to you and asking you to transform us. And Father, as long as we're in this life, we're still going to have more transformation that needs to be done. And we pray, Lord, that that we would have a, a cheerful Joyous countenance is those who are being conformed to the likeness of our Savior, those in whom you're working. Father, we will be glad. We won't be dull Christians who are who are half asleep if we're zealous about being transformed. We will be growing. We will be delighting in your truth. We'll be eager about it. Father, wake us up. Wake us up. Wake those who are sleeping. Father, work powerfully to bring about what what you have called us to be as gospel Christians, Christians who rest in Christ alone. That is what we're called to be. May it be so, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the blessing of our Lord and God. May your love abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen.